0: One of the things we we strive to is to also expand our services through outreach and education projects because a lot of people just don't know their rights. Yeah, and so Absolutely. I think you know a, a third of what the lawyers do at LAFLA are outreach events, mm-hmm. education events, workshops. You know, we're doing that with eviction defense right now. We have a great program called State House mm-hmm. of LA. LAFLA is the lead eight or legal services provider with nine others. Yeah, we still can't we still can't meet the need. Yeah, but we are meeting a lot of need, and we still are working with community-based organizations to do a lot of the workshops and the education because it has to be in tandem.
1: Hi everyone, this is Sandra Munoz, and we're back again with another episode of Law & Order Mesa Tacos. I just wanted to pop in before we really got started to let you know about today's guest. She is Sylvia Argueta, and she is the executive director of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. I will definitely talk about that with her and the important work that Legal Aid does. But I also wanted to let you know that I've known Sylvia for many, many years. I think it's been about 30 years. I met her back in the early 90s when I started working at a law office, my first job at what was then called Lit and Stormer. And Sylvia was a fellow there. And as I look back and I think about it, I realize that Sylvia was not only one of the very first attorneys I ever met, but she was definitely one of the very first Latina attorneys that I had ever met and that I ever worked with. And I have followed her career since then. We've been in contact since then. And she has just done super important work. And I was really happy that she was willing to come on and talk about all of that and talk about her journey and talk about her life. I think you're really gonna enjoy Sylvia. I think you're really gonna enjoy our conversation. And I just also wanted to thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you keep listening to Law and Order Me Some Tacos. So here's Sylvia, Sylvia Argueta. So Sylvia, let me ask you, let me start by asking you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Glendale, of all places.
0: Okay. Uh, moved there. Uh, so I'm from Guatemala. Uh-huh. And I was brought to the U.S. when I was six, and we lived lived in South Central Los Angeles, none of this South L.A. thing, South Central, right? on a little apartment on 39th and Hill. Oh, wow. And uh, because of the schools, my parents moved to Glendale because they wanted
1: better schools. Better schooling. Yeah. So you were born in Guatemala. Yeah. And what, what part of Guatemala? So, you know, as all Guatemalans,
0: I'll be a good Guatemalan. No offense to the others (laughs) in the capital, uh, Guatemala City. But I lived actually in a in a small town right next to the city called Villanueva, who sadly has the honor of being probably the most dangerous little town next to the city with the highest rate of gang crime. Oh really? Oh
1: yikes! Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well, you know that's all. That's that's the reality of many towns and cities. And well, I don't know. I was going to say in Central America but at least I know that uh, that to be true of El Salvador because I have some experience with El Salvador but I know yeah I know it's an issue well it's an issue everywhere right yeah even yeah. here in
0: LA I mean when I was there it was a quiet little town and now it's just it's sad but but still proud of it
1: yeah of course and so how old were you when you came to the United States I was six years old six years old do you remember anything about that
0: yeah you know I, I actually remember I came with my aunt who sadly has passed away mm. she was five years older than I and we were on a Pan Am flight so for your younger listeners they're gonna be like Pan Am what is that it <laughs> used to be an airline everyone and I remember just clutching her I was so scared mm. and my mom was already here she had remarried she's a, my mom was a widow when she first came to the US ah. and I remember... I remember being a brat because I hadn't seen my mom in two years. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't call her by her name. I would just be like Juana. Wow, really? At six? At six. Six, six years old,
1: you were you were already.
0: I was already projecting <laughs> who I would be as an adult.
1: <laughs> and you, and you do so. You do have memories of that. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So where did you go to undergrad?
0: UCLA. Wee. Wee. Bruins, go Bruins.
1: <laughs> and what, what well, I mean, this is so like what you always ask when you're, or at least what I always used to ask when I was in college, what was your major?
0: <laughs> I was a poli-sci and French major, oh, double majors.
1: You know, I yes. saw that when I was looking at your bio on the internet. So you were a French major, do you, did you, or do you speak French? I do speak French. It's rusty now, but... Yes, I have both majors. So, so you went to UCLA undergrad, and then where did you go to law school?
0: I went to the formerly known as UC Hastings, and now UC Law San Francisco. That Yeah, I, I, so they changed his name. Well, yes, turns out Hastings massacred Native Americans. Oh so, gosh, it didn't did look good that. for the school to continue with that name, so is it's that, been changed.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't even know that, Sylvia. Is that why the name changed? Yes. And how is it that you got into the law? Like, was that always like wh- where you wanted to go, where you wanted to end up?
0: Nope. I thought at when I was at UCLA that I was going to work in like the diplomatic core. I wanted to work either for the State Department, mm. but mostly really wanted to work at the UN.
1: Really? Uh, yeah.
0: And I did an internship in DC between my junior and senior year at UCLA and I met lawyers for the very first time. Mm. I had never met a lawyer and they had, I worked for the committee on education and labor for the house and met lawyers they encouraged me to go to law school they're like what no sylvia but go go to law school i'm like law school no i can't do that that's not for me and they really pushed and said no we'll we'll help you you know with applications we'll do whatever you need but go to law school and i always ask them like why they're like because you, they're like you are and it was weird because you know there's white people telling me yeah you're smart yeah and you can do this and we need more people like you and I was like what are these people talking about yeah and and I followed through because you know a little encouragement goes a long way
1: a long way doesn't it and a little exposure as well exactly yeah because let me ask because it's it's really fascinating to me so how is it that you thought I wanted to work for the United Nations how did you get there so I think it was because my my parents are really. It was a very very
0: political household, g- given that we came from Guatemala, yeah. the war in Guatemala. All politics were always talked about in our house, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, it would be great to be part of this this young, this body that really regulates other nations and right. you work together for the common good. Very very lofty starry-eyed young person I thought this is what I want to do and that's why I I continued learning French actually and I wanted Mm -hmm. to learn another language and it was interesting because I actually did go to an interview and they said would you be would you be amenable to learning Mandarin and I was like what and I said (laughs) you know what I would I never have which is a regret and maybe I will yeah but I thought it was just fascinating and I think it was my parents. They had a lot of influence. You know, they, they sixth grade and eighth grade educations, but you know my my dad, you know, had all sorts like he read the Quran and he read all of these books based on politics in Latin America and talked about it and expected you to, you know, just join that conversation. And my parents, listening to them. And so I I thought, this is what I want to do. So that's
1: just really fascinating, because I I mean, I don't know that I would have ever thought when I was, you know, before, you know, in high school or undergrad, you know, I want to work for the United Nations, because I probably didn't even know what the United Nations were at that time. But that's so interesting. So then, so you ended up just applying to law school and going to law school. Yes. And what was your goal when you went to law school? What did you think you wanted to do, or did you have any idea?
0: You know, my only goal was to do public interest law. Mm-hmm. I, the, I couldn't even imagine what a big law firm was like, yeah. honestly. And right off the bat, I started working for the Homeless Advocacy Project at Hastings, representing folks in their administrative hearings. Wow. They had a project, and I was like, yeah, this is exactly why I'm here. And I, I thought it was great, even though I can't say that... Hastings was the best place at that time. There was a lot of racial tension, but I thought this is what I want to do. And when I got exposed to it, doing the volunteer work that we did and then interning, I only interned at at public interest places. So I was at the National Center for Youth Law, which I'm very proud of having Mm -hmm. done a whole year there. But in my summers, I went to public counsel, Yeah, my first summer, and then I went and, and I externed my second year with Consuelo Marshall, which I think oh. a lot of people I know did that. And, yeah. and I met this just fantastic lawyers who only encouraged me to continue doing what I was doing in terms of public interest work.
1: And Consuelo Marshall was a United States District Court judge, correct? Yes. So yes. You, you clerked for her? I externed. You externed with her. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. that, that must have been an amazing experience. It was, especially because my supervisor was uh, Mona Tautau. Um,
1: mm. Okay, who, that name sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, so Mona, Mona's legend. She at one point worked at Neighborhood Legal Services oh, of LA County, yes. went on to work at LISNIC at Western Center, and is currently, I think, at an equal justice society.
1: I mean, some of the most important public interest agencies or legal legal services, right? Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So, yeah. And then what did you do after you graduated from, from law school? So after I graduated from law school, I went to work
0: for a small law firm called Lit and Stormer.
1: Wait, I've never heard of that. Have or heard that. of them? No. <laughs> I have heard of them. That's Lit. where we met. Exactly. Yeah. You were part of their, oh, my God, the Fallows. fellows. Fellows. <laughs> Jeez, I was already going to forget. <laughs> the you were fellows. part of the fellows, right? Yes. That's where Sylvia and I met because my sister, Olga, was a paralegal at Litton Stormer. She was mm-hmm. Dan Stormer's paralegal. Yes, she and was. And she got me a job there. My, my initial job there was like two weeks to review documents in the Lord cases because they had like a room full of boxes. And I, 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 they brought me on. Olga got me the job just to review documents. And then that just became a law career. <laughs> I it just became a law career. I remember you were just a baby. I was. I had, had uh, dropped out of USC, and my sister was like, "Oh no, you're gonna get a job." It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Olga. Yep, you're not just gonna flounder around. Yeah. And then what did you do after after Litton Stormer? So after Litton Stormer, I honestly thought I was gonna go
0: work at the federal public defenders mm-hmm. because Barry Lit was just awesome, and uh, he actually arranged an interview for, with me for me with the public defender at the time, who by the time we got back to the office was like, Sylvia, we'd love you to join us. But fate intervened. And uh, a friend and colleague, Robin Toma, had called me and said, we have an opening at the ACLU. It is rare to have an opening at the ACLU. You should apply. And I'm like, the ACLU? No, I don't think so. And he really encouraged me to do this. Again, who encourages you? Who pushes yeah. you? Who who sees you? Yeah. And I said, all right, for the heck of it, I'll apply. But I already kind of have a job offer. Right. so cocky. And I interviewed with them. And it was the scariest interview I think I've ever had. Why? Because they don't interview like, what's your goal in five years? They're more like, okay, these are these constitutional law cases and principles <laughs> that they want you to talk to. And it was a panel of them. And I was like, You are scary people. But I enjoyed it, you know, and I think having Ramona Ripson, who was the executive director at the time, sat in on the interview and just watched. And uh, Paul Hoffman. I mean, these are all my heroes, right? Yeah, right. Paul Hoffman and, and, you know, Carol Sobel was there at the time. And she was just amazing. And so when I got back, I was trying to weigh it heavily. And I went back to Judge Marshall Mm -hmm. because, you know, all her externs and definitely her clerks keep in touch with her. And I asked her for guidance,
1: and in the end, with her guidance, I chose to go to the ACLU. Right, and was that was, was that what she recommended or yeah. yeah, she did. Yeah, and do you have any regrets about that, looking back? No, you yeah. know what, I don't. Yeah, I don't. And you know,
0: it was weird because in law school, I I was like the crim pro person. Mm. I was a tutor in crim pro. I loved crim pro, but I don't. You know, I think it exposed me to public interest law in, in so yeah. many ways. And and at the ACLU, I did such a variety of cases. It was never, it was always interesting, always good people, smart people. Yeah. And I don't regret it. And so how long were you at the ACLU? A little over six years. Oh, wow. And what, what kind of law, what, what did you do there? So I was initially brought in to do like children's law, you know, issues affecting children. And that quickly merged into working with Paul on human rights cases. So Mm. I was really grateful to work on the cases I did with him. So we represented an Argentinian gentleman who was Jewish, who was persecuted by the junta in Argentina, in the United States. Oh, wow. And so that was a really fabulous case that Paul brought me on to. I really enjoyed and learned so much from yeah. him and from all my colleagues. Mm-hmm. I got to work at the beginning of the Prop 187 case oh, um, for the CLUs, yeah. for yeah. the ACLU team. Yeah. Um, so I was in charge of clients. I think I've always been very client oriented. Mm-hmm. So I was in charge of... Finding the right plaintiff that would get us that TRO.
1: Yeah, because what you were trying to do was Prop 187 passed, right? It did pass. And then you were trying to get it stopped before it could be enacted. Exactly. (laughs) There's a really rough legal way to explain it, but I think think it does paint the picture. It does. You filed a lawsuit that sort of... You, you got it. You said TRO is a temporary restraining, restraining order, order yeah, meaning yeah. it wasn't going to be put into effect.
0: That's right, and it was with Maldef, of yeah. course. Mm-hmm. But I was at the ACLU at the time, and so I actually found the lead plaintiff, which was oh. he was a little boy, who was at Children's Hospital. He had he had, had gotten into the cabinet in his house and drank Drano, and he had encephalitis, so his brain had swelled. And the fear, of course, was, you know, he could get kicked out of the hospital yeah. because his parents were undocumented. He was undocumented. And, you know, that took a while to get the parents and working with the parents I'm to sure. make them plaintiff. Because unlike some of my colleagues thought, was like, I'd come back to the office and they'd be like, did you get the retainer? And I'm like, no, haven't even broached a retainer. Yeah. Just talking about how their kid's doing and bringing them coffee and whatnot. So that took a while. And 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 it really brought it you know just front and center and live the the impact that this that this well this was also have.
1: this was also in the 1990s yep 94 yeah where where sort of the status of being undocumented is was not it's not the same as it is now here in California right where right. the undocumented in California have a lot of protections and they really are part of our society it i mean probably in a way that, what I'm trying to say is that part of the fabric of California society in a way that's probably unlike any other state in the United States. But in 1994, this was not the case, right? Proposition 187 was a, I mean, it was a horrible, I mean, it was a horrible proposition that tried to really...
0: It wanted to exclude undocumented kids from schooling, uh, from public benefits, uh, from just it was you know part of Pete Wilson's war on immigrants yeah and you know a lot of people voted and won and it was I think it was it's was such a rewarding time for me especially because I had you know like I said clients were my thing and I was I, I got to talk to clients have them take that courageous step of saying okay i'll do it they were all does obviously in 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 court we didn't release their names but to protect them but it took a lot of courage to say yes to someone you you met a week ago that you know would you be willing to be a plaintiff and so i've always admired all of our clients
1: yeah it does take a lot of courage i mean in that particular case of course it takes a lot of courage but just generally i'm always in awe of, of people who are willing to come forth and bring lawsuits and subject themselves to lawsuits and what that process is like, which is not easy. It's not, you know, it's, it takes a lot to, to not walk away from a wrong and to stand up and, and try to do something about it. Absolutely. So I can, I can see that back in, in 1994 with Prop 187, that must have been just really... Yeah. satisfactory work, satisfying it really, work. yeah. It really was. And then I also did, I was a jail lawyer
0: for four years. Yeah. And that was, boy, that was an eye-opener where you would never wish any, any man that you consider a friend, a brother, a relative, anyone like that, you would never wish that on them because the conditions in those jails is just terrible. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was telling you that I was telling you before we started that I did it, I did a summer externship at ACLU with you. You were there and I went I remember working with you on those jail cases. I went to the Men's Central Jail with you a couple of times and it, I mean I'm, I it, that's what was probably like 25 years ago and I can still remember vividly what Men's Central Men's Central Jail was like inside and I can remember the smell. I can remember everything about it because it was I mean a, an entirely different world that I mean, you don't know anything about unless you're in it, you know. Exactly, it's such a
0: dehumanizing place. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's unfortunately sad that it's still open. But yeah, it was you know it was really good work. And again, it's you know the our clients were all the inmates at that time. There were twenty thousand inmates in um in the in the jails throughout Los Angeles County, and they were all the ACLU's clients wow. because. Of, of a case that the ACLU had brought years ago and there there was, you know, we were monitoring the conditions of confinement. And you also got to see some of the most wonderful people in that jail. You know, I'll, one story I'll tell you, I, I'll never forget. I had walked in there and a bunch of young men who were Asian came up to me and they said, hey, you know, and they would never call me by my name, Sylvia. They would always say, hey, ACLU, which at first used to jar me. I'm like, Okay, but i afterwards I was like yes ACLU. What do you want? And they were like Grandpa over there is here and there's something wrong. He shouldn't be in this jail. Something happened to him They're like with a dog and I'm like you guys are liars Never mind. I'll go talk to them and they were like no really and I said did you take his shoes because they, they all take each other's shoes And they were like no, we didn't take his shoes, but we might and I said, okay, don't take his shoes So we want I walked to this gentleman anglo man older And I was like, why are you here? Can I help you? And he was like, he had had a judge order him held because he had violated repeatedly not getting that dog. A license and I said, No, 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 you can't be here for that. That, that can't be, that's not no, mm, you're in general population, <laughs> yeah. And it turned out it was true. And all he asked of me, he said, You know, all I want from you is please call my wife because she has no idea. I went out for a doll walk and I got picked up. Oh my god, and I was like, This is not a real story. And, and I, I really was like, mm, Okay, let me find out. So I always walked with a captain and I said, Can you check him out and tell me what he's in there for? and he goes, Oh my God, Sylvia, he's, he's not kidding. And we were able to get him out because even the captain was like, okay, he's just taking up a bed and I, I don't need him here. And I tell you the story because it was the humanity of those young men who came up yeah. to me and said, hey, yeah. you know what? This is wrong. Yeah. And take care of him.
1: You know, it's easy to think like everybody at Men's Central Jail is like, like they're not worth anything or they're not human, but it's just simply not the case.
0: Exactly. Oh, that's You know, crazy. most of them were there because at that time were there because they couldn't post bail. Yeah. Yeah. It's not because anybody had been found guilty. I mean, 70% of them were waiting for their first hearings and, and I think that's what we forget. And I saw a lot of that, you know, yeah. I saw it because, you know, sadly the sheriff's department, it wasn't just the inmate they punished, they punished the family. So mm. a lot of times I would do work with the families in the lobbies because they were getting treated horribly. Yeah. And you forget, you know, these are human beings and we all make mistakes. Yeah. And I think it's so easy to vilify
1: people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. So that must have been really tolling, right? That kind of work. It was. It was incredible. That's why
0: only four years. And, you know, I had learned from the wonderful Lisa Anderson, who had done the job before me. And it just takes its toll on you. And I think that's when I was like, maybe it's time to leave because it was a lot.
1: Yeah. And so where did you go next after the ACLU? So after the ACLU I went to MALDEF? The Mexican American Legal Defense Fund. Yeah, North and Legal Education Defense and Education. Fund. Fund. Sorry yes. about that. Sorry, MALDEF. <laughs> so then you went to MALDEF. And what did you do at MALDEF? So at MALDEF I continued
0: working on Prop 187, but different. I did a lot of I did a lot of, you know, the case had already been filed and it was just the tail end and I, I think I did a lot of watching other people in court, which was great and they were doing fantastic work. Did some in, I did an employment law case. I wasn't there long. You yeah. know, I Bruce Iwasaki, who was the executive director at the ACLU sorry, at Lafla. Yeah. At the at Lafla. Lafla. Yeah. <laughs> Big faux pas. At the time he and I had met during the Prop one eighty seven case mm-hmm. because his law firm, O'Melvin and Myers, were pro bono counsel. And so I'd gotten to know him. And, you know, the, the the public interest world is very, we all know each other. It's a very small world. Yeah, non Veda was working for him as his associate and, uh, at the time. And uh, Bruce heard I was leaving for Moldef and said, no, 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 you know, come work at FLA. And I kind of blew him off because, you know, you're so cocky after working at the ACLU. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a hierarchy amongst the public interest the organizations. Interest, is I what guess you're saying. so. <laughs> And then
0: Maldives, right? You know, mm-hmm. even more. Yeah. And so, so he and I had a chat and, I, and I, I was convinced because LAFLA is, so Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles gets funding from the federal government from a nonprofit federal agency called Legal Services Corporation, and they have restrictions mm-hmm. that were place, put in place in 1996.
1: Under what president? Um, that Would have been Clinton? That
0: would have been Clinton, but it was the Gingrich Congress ah, who put those regulations into, in, into place. Yeah. And one of the restrictions, many, many restrictions, you can't represent undocumented folks. And that was a big deal for me. You can't do class actions. Mm-hmm. That's still in place. Yeah. And I said, no, You you have like all these restrictions I've heard about. I won't go there. And he said, "But there's so much. I pushed the envelope, Sylvia. The, you'll be able to do litigation." And sure enough, he convinced me because he's a good lawyer. And I went to to Lafla. It'll be 24 years in
1: July. Wow. So wow. yeah, like 1999. Yes. Wow. And and you went and so did, did, you went as a staff attorney or?
0: Yes, I was a staff attorney and. And I began working in the public benefits unit at the time, government benefits, doing health law. That's what I was brought in to do
1: was health law. And what does that mean, Sylvia, health law? So representing folks who are
0: not getting Medi Cal, Medicare, this specific grant, it was a grant, it was regarding MediCal and getting people on to Medi-Cal benefits under mm-hmm. a certain program called nineteen thirty one B. And and I really enjoyed it. And I you know, it was it was a Jarring to be at LAFLA because you have clients every day, <laughs> and at you know at MALDEF and at the ACLU you don't. Yeah. And you kind of cherry pick your clients. Right here, it's people walking in; they have issues that are impacting their life, their well-being, their employment, their housing, and we, we did benefits. And so, when you were Attorney of the Week, you had basically to take all those cases and and, and vet them. Right, and you had intake screeners, but it was a lot. And I was like, oh, my God. It was like, they don't stop coming every week. And I knew this. It's legal services. But I think until you do it, you don't
1: appreciate how difficult it is. Yeah. Let me ask you, because, I mean, I don't know that I'm, I'm, and I can tell you that I'm somewhat familiar with what Legal Aid does. But can you tell us what, like, what, what does Legal Aid do? What does LAFLA do? So we
0: provide free legal services to poor people mm-hmm. in Los Angeles County in eight substantive areas. So we do housing, and in housing, there's two specific areas. We do eviction defense, which is about 40% of the work, the caseload at LAFLA, completely at LAFLA. In because the whole, in and the, the, whole the whole organization. organization oh, wow. We also do Section 8. You know, we do public policy on, on housing issues. We have some really great kick-ass lawyers who are suing on behalf of homeless folks, all the city ordinances that have been enacted to, to I guess, criminalize homeless people. We also do family law, employment, public benefits, immigration. We do immigration, yeah, which is great. Um, and how
1: do you do immigration if you can't?
0: We represent Women Under the Violence wow. Against Women Act. Yeah. There's a thing called the Kennedy Amendment that allows us to represent victims of crime. We represent refugees and asylees. Okay. So, you know, our latest group of clients have been Ukrainians, some Ukrainian refugees and Afghanis. Oh, wow. So,
1: And how do they come do, to
0: you? You know, we thankfully have, a, we work with a network of, of advocates in, in Los Angeles. And we've been doing the representing of refugees and asylees. For as long as I've been at Lafla, mm-hmm. and so, and we've—it's a niche practice that we have, and you know, we've have some of some lawyers who've been there forever, who really are the experts in in these areas. You know, Michael Ortiz, who started the Immigrants Rights Office in the late '80s at Lafla, has been doing this, and so has always had this practice, and and we continue to have the practice. We used to be so National Immigration Law Center used to be a part of LAFLA, but milk? because of the, re- milk. Oh, really? But because of the restriction, um, they broke off and became mm. their or- organization and Peter Shea took it.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so then how does, I mean, I know you said that you provide legal services to the poor. Do you have to qualify for services from legal aid? You do. You and do.
0: what are those qualifications? So you have to be financial el- eligibility. So 125 now two hundred up to 200% of poverty level, which, you know, it, it, in real numbers, if you if it's a family that makes about a four that makes about twenty four thousand dollars, you qualify mm. for our services. Mm-hmm. The two hundred percent of poverty level lately has been something that both the state bar that gives us funding and other funders, the City of Santa Monica we can we can represent people that are a little higher income but you're still poor yeah Yeah. very poor and you also have to you know uh, of course we look at your immigration status Mm -hmm. which is the hardest one but you know as i said we do represent undocumented folks that are getting vawa benefits you also assets you know when most Mm -hmm. poor people don't have a lot of assets and so there's a there's a criteria that we have to qualify folks and you know Right now, about 1.3 million people qualify for our services. And last year, we worked with 100,000.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. So 1.3 million in the county of LA. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. (laughs) Well, that's a lot of
0: people. A lot of people.
1: And, And the service, once they are qualified or once they qualify, the legal services that are provided to them are free. Yes, completely free. Completely free. Oh wow! So they, and like family law, you do. What kind of family law do you do? We do
0: mostly domestic violence. Mm. So we do. We work with a lot of survivors. Yeah, representing them, getting TROS. We, you know, we have an Asian Pacific Islander outreach project that has really blossomed and really helps the API community with domestic violence issues, mm-hmm. and so we work with a lot of survivors there. But. Any survivor that qualifies under our, our, our plan. We have other legal aid programs you yeah. know, in, in Los Angeles, as you all well know, Neighborhood Legal Services. Yeah. A wonderful partner of ours who also is a sister organization. So, you know, we all try to fit the need. But we just, it, it's a lot of people who have need who don't get benefits right. Of, right. of having
1: a lawyer. Yeah, because lawyers are expensive. And, you know, I mean, they're expensive. Yep, they are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think that one of the things we
0: we strive to is to also expand our services through outreach and education projects because a lot of people just don't know their rights. Yeah, and so Absolutely. I think you know a, a third of what the lawyers do at Lafla are outreach events, education mm-hmm. events, workshops. You know, we're doing that with eviction defense right now. We have a great program called State House mm-hmm. LA. Lafla is the lead eight legal services provider with nine others.
1: Yeah,
0: we still can't we still can't meet the need. Yeah, but we are meeting a lot of need, and we still are working with community-based organizations to do a lot of the workshops and the education because it has to be in tandem. Right. One thing, you know, you learn quickly in legal services is no one can be siloed because if you are, you really are doing a disservice to poor people. So we have to we have to learn to work with each other and really move an agenda forward.
1: So when you say that nobody can be siloed, to be, like you can't work in isolation, you have to... You have to be open to other organizations and work with them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we always partner. Uh, when you don't partner, then you're missing something. Right. Yeah.
1: And so so literally, like, people walk into the, the various offices you have in the county of valet to seek services. Yes. Yeah.
0: Every day, our offices, I'm at the headquarters in Westlake on 8th and, and Union. And on Mondays, it's crowded and lots of clients seeking services, especially... As we've opened up post-pandemic, not we're not even post-pandemic, but as we leave this pandemic, the lobbies are always full and there's so much need. And I think that's the hard part. You know, we did we do a justice gap study like every other year um, with our funder, um, LSC. And for every person that we help, we can't help one. Oh, man. Yeah. And that's just we need more legal aid lawyers, but we need more funding. Yeah. And how many lawyers do you have? Good Lord, I believe we've now hit our 99th lawyer and we have
1: 246 staff. Wow. That is, that. I mean, that's a really big organization. It's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's <really laughs> huge. It is. And you're in charge of the whole thing, is that right? Yes. I'm in charge of the whole thing. How did you get there, Sylvia? Like, how did, you, were, you, you were a staff attorney, and it's a, then. It's actually a very. Interesting, weird
0: story. I was a senior, I became a senior staff attorney Mm -hmm. the year after I started. And, you know, I was unionized, right? So when I got there, I was like, why do we have a union? What's wrong with these lawyers? Why can't they represent themselves? And people were like, shut up. (laughs) They literally were like, shut up, Sylvia. (laughs) And so I was part of the East office doing government benefits, but because I was involved in the union, I also got to meet board members. When we were when we were bargaining, we'd hear about them. We'd have a lot of meetings. Bruce was very big on, you know, bringing board members to meetings and whatnot. We also did presentations in front of them. When Bruce decided to leave Lafla in 96, He, I was part of the transition committee, so then I really got involved and got to meet board members, Mm -hmm. and we had two transitions in two years of executive directors. Oh, really? Didn't quite work out. (laughs) And so I was surprised on a Sunday evening to get a call from a board member who said, the executive director has left and we'd like to appoint you as the interim executive Mm -hmm. director, and I literally dropped my cell phone. I was at my mom's, and I was like, what? I said, I thought you just said, you know, that first of all, the director left and you want me to be what? And she said, yes, Sylvia, we really would. And I said, no, 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 you know, there's so-and-so. And I named like every manager at Laughlin, and they were like, okay, we're calling you. <clears throat> and I said, can I think about it? And they literally said, you have two hours.
1: Really? hmm And I guess I was
0: a pushover because I was like, okay, <laughs> what's wrong with me? And I did. I'm like, okay. So my brother happened to be home. <laughs> he He was like, what's happening with you? And I'm like... He just offered me the interim executive director position at Laughlin. He's like, you're not a manager. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and uh, and my mother was listening. She goes like, ¿qué está pasando? And we told her and she goes, ¿y por qué no? And I was like, there you go, mom. And yep. I said, that's right, mom, right? And ¿Y por qué not? no? Yeah. And so two hours later, I called the board member back and I said, real cocky. I'll do this for six months, okay? And that's it. And she was like, oh, okay, Sylvia six months it is. And I was so, like, you know, green. I didn't negotiate a salary. I didn't even talk about salary. I was like, oh, okay. And when are we announcing this? They're like, Monday. I'm like, that would be tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have cases. I'm like, I have a caseload. What am I going to do with that? Your manager will figure it out. Tell her what to do. And I'm like, tell my manager what to do? Oh, oh no. Wow. So,
1: yeah, it it happened almost overnight. <laughs> that is... That's amazing. <laughs> so, you went from senior staff attorney to interim executive director. Yes. And you had no, like, no management sort of- <laughs> experience. <laughs> and, but, no, no, like, go laugh, laugh, No idea, or, like, no, like, that was your path, or that's where you were shooting for. I mean, maybe down the line, but not, certainly not Monday. <laughs> <laughs> monday now you know the irony of it is i had just on
0: saturday i had just revised my resume i had i had updated it because i'm like what is happening at lafla mm. we were struggling there were some issues yeah. with leadership and i was like mm, maybe it's time to leave and it was shocking to yeah. get that call yeah. and you know i said i said six months yes and in in july end of july it will be 14 years
1: <laughs> well, you know, time is Six, time is time is relative. <laughs> time is a capitalist construct. <laughs> there you go. Exactly.
0: Exactly. And so, you know, imagine, imagine me walking into my first management meeting. All my managers, all the managers, looked at me like, "What are they thinking?" And, I, and honest to God, I'm 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 very self aware, and I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, but I'm gonna run this baby. <laughs> can't even like, I mean, because I mean, I can see that happening, like you know, at a small firm, you know. But you're talking about like a a huge organization. Yes. And so how did how did you do, how did you do that, Sylvia? How did you take that on? You know, day by day, day
0: by day. I I have to tell you the truth. I had a lot of support from staff. Mm. Having been in the union, I, I eventually became the union president. Very right. proud of that. Yeah, And I think, you know, you forget what skills you learn along the way. So I had learned about budgeting for Lafla. I knew the budget inside out because we had a bargain. Uh, and I think there were those skill sets that even I was like, do I really know this? But then when people would start talking about budget and we were preparing the budget for the board, we had our dinner Like within two weeks of my starting and, you know, all honorees, everything was set in place. But I was like, what are we doing? And I think that it was the staff that really helped me through it. I got to tell you, you know, we have a a fiscal director at LaFla and she's wonderful. She's been at LaFla now for close to 50 years. And she literally, Bruce told me, if you ever have a financial question, anything, Sylvia, go to Linda. Right. And that's my go to person. I've yeah. told her, you know, Linda is now beyond retirement age and I won't let her retire because I'm like, if you leave, I leave. <laughs> like literally. Yeah. But she taught me so much. Yeah. And and I think there were other generous people in administration who just really said, Okay, let me help you with the ropes.
1: Well, it says it says a lot, well at least from my perspective, it says a lot both about the organization, right, and the staff that was there already, but it also says about you it says a lot about you that they were willing to to help you, right, and to to support you in in that task. Because I might just can't – it seems really unimaginable to me. Like, I can't – I mean, you know, but I'm a solo practitioner (laughs) on purpose, you know. Well, you know, well, thank you for that. I I went to
0: a conference about a month later in D.C. And, you know, Obama had just been elected. Everybody was so happy. And I remember going to this new executive director training because that's one thing legal aid – is good at, especially the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, they train you, they, yeah. they have all kinds of trainings, and they have a new executive director training. And there I am, and everybody was just incredibly generous, yeah. but also very shocked. They were like, what? <laughs> were you a manager, Sylvia? I'm like, no, I was a senior staff lawyer. And they were like, and, you know, I could hear some people going, what is lawful thinking? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to say it here, but here I'm going to act like I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And, but I, I got it. People were really surprised, and... You know, I learned a lot because I, I I've always been a nerd, always <laughs> even since I was a little kid, and so I just I just learned everything I could about the job, whether it was finance, the development the legal department. We at that time ended up not having a litigation director. So all of legal also reported to me. And I was like, and that was my fun stuff. I'm like, okay, legal's fun. Yeah, I understand you, but everything else administrative, I had to learn, HR issues. And and people were, like I said, in the community of legal services, not only in California, but throughout the nation, were very people reached out and said, "Well, how can we help you?" Mm-hmm. And these are people who'd never heard of me because I was a staff attorney. I was in a yeah a manager, and they did, and a lot of tenacity.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> a lot of fortitude, tenacity. Like I'm going to do this, and strong coffee. <laughs> yes, that I'm sure that must have helped as well. Absolutely. Can I ask you? I mean, I don't know the history of, of Legal Aid of Lafla, but were you? Had there been Latina ED executive director before you?
0: There had been Latino. Latino. Uh, Tomas Olmos.
1: Oh, Tomas Olmos. Tomas
0: Olmos was one of our ex- executive directors. Did when I was at, that? when we were at, uh, at Lynn Stormer. Oh, he, really? He became, he was at the EOC and then went to Laughlin, became the ED. And before him, uh, I think interim or full, and he's going to man if I get it wrong, but Richard Piaz. Oh,
1: shoot. The Ninth mm, Circuit. The Ninth Circuit. Just, just Judge. 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 All right. Yes. Okay, but you were the first Latina ED.
0: Yes. Oh wow. And I'm only
1: the third female. Third female. Wow, that's so amazing. How can I ask you about that? Because I I wanted, I, I was thinking about our, our our this today our recording today, and I know for me like one of the reasons that I have my own office that I I eventually went out on my own, that I've kept my office really small, like literally like just my assistant and me. And why i didn't really start loving the practice of law until I had my own office was because at my own office, I can totally be myself, like i don't have to play a role or be anything in particular for you know my employers or for coworkers and I was thinking about you because you're in this like ama- you're just in this position you 're the first Latina executive director of legal aid. What is that like for you? Do you know what I mean?
0: You know, I didn't I don't think I appreciate it until I really did go to that first conference in D.C. and walked into a room that was mostly white men. Yeah. And a few African-American executive directors, both male and female, and I looked around and I'm like, where are the Latinos at the national level? And there were just a few like, I think there were like two or three. And it was overwhelming. And all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, oh, this is more than me. This is a bigger, this is our community and, yeah. and it's representing. And, and it was overwhelming, I think, at that conference, but I came back with a a, a sense of mission of I better do this right. Yeah. Because I'm representing a bunch of people and boards are, and my board is, is you know, I don't, They've never said anything about my race, but I, I really felt this sense of I want to make sure they know that they did the right thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was overwhelming. And it still is, you know, because we're still very unrepresented at in, in legal services throughout the nation.
1: At least in California, the, the people who receive services from legal aid must be predominantly people of color. People
0: of color. And for ALAFLA, the predominant, obviously the the... The group we, we represent the most are Latinos, yeah. and then African-Americans, yeah. and then Asians. And and so, you know, I take pride in, in hopefully transforming Laughland into mm-hmm. an organization that looks like the clients we serve. Mm-hmm. And also my leadership team, you know, my leadership team is very diverse. Yeah. Mostly women, mostly women of color. yeah, And I think that's important yeah. because you don't see that in other organizations that are legal services. Mm-hmm. And, and you're starting to see a tide change. As people are retiring, mm-hmm. you're starting to see new new young people with a lot of, I don't know, ganas come in yeah. and just be like, I'm going to take this over and, and do this work. And, so, um, in L- and in California, it's pleasantly changed. You yeah. know, When I started, there were two other Latinas in legal services as executive directors in inland counties and in Bakersfield. They're both now gone, but, you know, we gained Yvonne Marie Jiménez yes. at NLS a few years ago, who's mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. And we have others in inland counties now, has a Latina running the organization, which is fantastic. And Wait, I think we're that? changing. Tessie mm, okay. Uh She just started really lately. Mm. And, and so that, I think that's really important to see the demographic change in executive directors.
1: Yeah. Can I also tell you, like as I know you said, it was overwhelming because you carry that. You carry that. I mean I, I mean, I feel it too, even <laughs> even in my little office, just where it's just me, I, I, can't, I don't I'm not alone. I carry my family, my mom, my sisters. Mm. Olga, okay, you know, Olga. And also just my community, you know. But it's just me in my office. I, I just think I'm so impressed by the fact that you're, like, leading this organization. And it must be. Well, first of all, you're not just a solo practitioner. You're
0: Sandra Munoz, and you are kick-ass. And and I think that you lead the way in, in ways that you probably don't see that all, that's, that we all do. So let's get that in, out of the way, because okay. it's true. Okay,
1: all right. We can and, get that out of the way, but, but I it, just... It
0: is, it, you know, it, 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 it's... Uh, it's one of those things where you have to, you represent, um, whether you like it or not, you represent a group of, of women that you want to ensure that there will be an easier path for those yeah. that come after. Yeah. And it, it'll only be easy if you do a really kick-ass job. And I have to tell you, you know, one one of the people I've always admired is Antonia Hernandez at, yeah. at Maldive She was the president general counsel when I was there. And she's, she's an icon because she, she really brings a group of women up right. and that have grown up with her, that have learned from her and, and gone into leadership positions. And, and yeah. I'm grateful to her because things she said when I was at Maldives resonated in my head about how you show up. Yeah. And how you represent and how you have to be more more than just good, you have to be excellent. You know, and, and I mean she's shown that. I mean look, yeah. Tom's been there for a long time and he's wonderful. He's he's an excellent president general counsel and he was my boss when I was at Maldef. And so I think that it is how we show up as Latinos and how we lead because other people are watching us. Yeah, I know. But isn't that, isn't it exhausting? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It can be, yeah. you know, to be, to be perfectly honest, it can be. Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> exactly. um, I want to
1: screw up and it just I, be my screw my up, screw not up. the whole community screw up, you know? Exactly.
0: But yeah. that's not how you're seeing, I know. you know? And, you know, it, it, In, you know, we all are, I always say we're all a bunch of little fish, big fish in little ponds in legal services. We think we're like the end all be all of the country in terms of the work we do. And we are. But I also think that when you see that the demographics are changing and that we need to ensure that the next generation is really representing, it only will happen if we've shown our boards, our community that we lead with integrity yeah and 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 that is always there so it is it's always there it is, is it a burden absolutely mm-hmm. but you know what it, it's a happy burden and it's a privilege burden to have
1: you're right it is a privilege and it is i mean ultimately it's when when you know that you've done a good job and you know you've you know broken barriers or maybe like you know yeah i mean it, it's very satisfying to know when you've done a good job or for me i always like I, I, more so before the pandemic when you actually had to go places I always like whenever I went to like a big firm for a deposition it's inevitable like the the either the assistant to the attorney working on the case or the receptionist was Latina or in court like the clerk is Latina and you you know not always but you can always sometimes see like this this little connection that they had with you or you with them because there was just this kind of like Oh yeah, you're or especially if you had been doing a good job, like the assistance to these big attorneys. You know, it was just all you could sense. And maybe I'm delusional, and it, nothing was happening. But you could sense like their pride, or just a connection because you know they were happy to see an attorney, a Latina attorney, doing doing the work.
0: I I, I think there is a connection. I think yeah. I've had those moments in firms. You know, my board members for the most part come from big law, mm-hmm. and I have to go visit them. And when I do, and and I'm like. I'm Sylvia, at the yeah. reception, then they look at you like, "Oh, yeah, and, yeah. you know, especially after the title That's and and sure. and I'm like, oh, and they're like, there's just a smile sometimes that they give you and and you know it, and, yeah, you know, and you do that even with, you know the the folks who are are the cleaning folks or the folks who are, you know, they have they actually have kitchens there at firms and <laughs> and the folks that work there look at you like, there's yeah. like a Maybe I see it too, and, and maybe it's not there, but I see like a little tiny hint of pride. Yeah, to yeah. see that you're on that other end and, and 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 you're there, and and it's it's important. I think that's why representation really matters at all levels. And so, you know, being the EDA of, of this organization has taught me to not be so afraid to put myself and to toot my own horn because I never do, and and I think that's the one thing my staff, managers, other people say, Sylvia, you're doing this. And, and I'm like, no, oh, okay, I won't talk about it. And I think I would disappoint Antonia Hernandez because she's like, get out there and, and yeah. show people who you are. But
1: it's hard for me. It really is. It's hard for me too. Maybe some people would not agree with that, but I just, yeah, I think, it, I think that's changing though with the generations. Cause I, I do think like the generations after us are much, much better at, you know, celebrating themselves which is great which is really good and it's important because there's just I mean why not you know exactly but I also think you should celebrate yourself because I just I mean it's super impressive that you are the executive director that you've done what you did especially now that you've told me how you became the executive director and how you (laughs) took that on it's super impressive Sylvia and I just I, I just think it's really great Thank and you. I congratulate you. I appreciate that. I really do. I really do. <laughs> I
0: mean, we've come a long way. We have, remember, from Lytton Stormer. <laughs> from but, you know Stormer. It, it, as I said, it's who gives you encouragement and who, who loves you. And, and you and I have this special connection of not only having met when you were a baby, but having your sister. You know, Olga, as you all know, has mentored and taught so many young lawyers who are now doing wonderful things. You know, she... Was always my cheerleader. And no matter what I did. Well, except when I did a filing wrong. (laughs) But she taught me that. You know, she's like the person who put me in a copy room and said this is how you do a filing why why it takes so long to put it together because in the old days you had to staple things in blueback mm-hmm. not none of this e-filing nope. easy stuff whole punch and whole punch and she taught me and she said that's why you have to give me the brief at this hour otherwise yeah. you know we're we're running red lights to court which i really enjoyed with her running red lights she taught me well
1: <laughs> yeah so i mean Olga was my parent, my first paralegal when i were, when I worked at Hatzel and Stormer out of law, out of law school. And yeah, trust me, she was, she taught me everything that law school didn't teach me about filing and deadlines and when to give stuff to your assistants so they're not going crazy, doing things at the last minute, you know, and and not, you know, because that's a really big burden for them too. No, she taught me so much. That's why, you know, I get really emotional when I talk about her because, she i mean i wouldn't be an attorney if it weren't for her you know yeah i know yeah i wouldn't be the attorney i am if it weren't for her yeah and then she went on to work at neighborhood legal services for many years and i right. i love my sister passed away about a little more than two years ago and i love hearing stories about her you know about her how house okay my sister was really she was really great she was a really hard worker but she was also really crazy <laughs> <laughs> she was also no, really. She was also really crazy and really funny too. she was hilarious. Love, she was so funny. She um, had this
0: ongoing. She had this ongoing competition with me because she was at NLS and I'm at Lafla. And when I started at Lafla, it's a crazy story, but for whatever reason, I wasn't assigned to secretary yet, and so I needed to get a points and authority, a brief out, and nobody could do the points and authorities. And I'm like, what the heck? So I called Olga, Yeah, and she, I think at that time, was at Hansel and & Stormer, and she did it for me. Oh, did and, she? But, but later on, when she was at NLS, we'd always go, yeah, because, you know, you had to call me, Sylvia, and because at NLS, we have the skills. That, I was like, wow, shut up. <laughs> and so it was like this healthy little competition yeah. she had. But I tell you, when I became the executive director, I called her, and she embraced it, loved it, Cheered me on, and and that's why I loved her because, I it, it is back to that encouragement. Who encourages yeah. you in your life? And she she saw me, and I think Olga saw me before I saw myself mm. a lot, many years before. And she yeah. said, "This makes sense." Because I said, "Can you believe it?" And she said, "Yes, I can." That makes experience. yeah. She
1: was a huge cheerleader <laughs> she for yeah. so many. Lat- she loved Latina mm-hmm. women, Latina attorneys. She loved like just just encouraging them and I've heard so many stories from so many people because a lot of people pass through NLS and I just yeah I wouldn't you know I wouldn't there's just no way I would be an attorney without her because she got me that job at Lynn Stormer and she thought I was floundering after I dropped out of USC I
0: love her (laughs) love her no she wouldn't you know it's amazing to me just how many people she did mentor
1: yeah I know and
0: I sure hope we all told her Yeah, because She was fabulous and and i the her uniqueness and her way of telling things and getting on your butt when you weren't doing things right she was honest (laughs) there was nothing there what you saw is what you
1: got and it is really a testament to the fact that you don't i mean you know of course being an attorney is is great and and you can have a really huge impact as an attorney but oga was a paralegal at neighborhood legal services and she, did, she worked in many departments. I know at some point she worked in the domestic violence department. And she had such an impact in terms of like clients and services and the attorneys. And she just really was gun ho about her job anywhere she was. She always wanted yes. to be like a really good worker. Always.
0: always. 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 And, you know, she could run circles around lawyers. Yeah. I, I, I was a baby lawyer when I joined at Litton Stormer. And she taught us all, you know. Yeah. I know. People who are now judges and yeah. other things. And she taught you. And, and I think I think as lawyers, sometimes you have to remember, you have to be humble because there are other people in your law office that know a whole lot more than you do. Mm-hmm. They may not have the title of, of attorney, but they yeah. know a whole lot more than you do.
1: And they play a they play a role. And they play a huge role. Exactly. They play a role in it. And it's an important role. And it. it's, it's, yeah, you can't just be like, oh, whatever, you know, or treat staff or anybody with disrespect like that because everybody plays a critical role in the job that you're trying to do and the services you're trying to provide to your to your client yeah no i know i i I miss oka a lot you know my family misses her a lot because she was just uh, real funny Oh, and that too (laughs) oh my gosh she was so funny that too i don't think i've had the, the, the
0: the 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 best laughs i've had in my in my life i think i've had with her
1: yeah I mean, you know, yeah. So, yeah, it was a really big loss when she passed away in our family because she was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. and, and Yeah. Oh, God. It's going to be her birthday in a couple of days. So, happy birthday to her. Happy birthday. <laughs> Olita. Yeah. I loved her. So, let me ask you, Sylvia, because we're going to start talking about some also very important things like food.
0: That's really important.
1: <laughs> I have been to Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And I have been to the Pollo Campero in Guatemala. Please stop. <laughs> the Pollo Campero in Guatemala and El Salvador is really good. I love the Pollo. I mean, the Pollo Campero here is really good, too. But the Pollo Campero down there is very serious and it's delicious. And I think there's like a... There's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference. But isn't there like a like a... I mean, there's where Pollo Campero started, was it El Salvador or was it Guatemala? Do you know? It
0: was Guatemala. (laughs)
1: Sorry, okay.
0: Sandra, honest.
1: (laughs) It was Guatemala, yeah. Well, you know. That's why
0: my people bring it on the plane and make it smell horribly.
1: Excuse me, but I've been for I've been, I've gone to El Salvador many times and there's a Pollo Campero at the airport in El Salvador and I've been on flights where the, the flight attendants announce on the mic, señores y señoras, este vuelo viene muy ocupado. Por favor, pongan sus pollos camperos abajo del asiento. Oh, yes. that, <laughs> well, that was hilarious. That, that
0: is what happens on those flights <laughs> exactly, from our know. countries.
1: <laughs> it's awesome. The, the, the plane smells like pollos plane, The entire plane, <laughs> the entire
0: ride. You're like, if you don't like it, God help you. But you're also from Los Angeles,
1: so I have yeah. to imagine that you are you have had tacos in your life
0: sometimes.
1: <laughs> Somebody you- recently asked me why they're like,
0: why do you like LA? And I'm like, tacos. Exactly. Why else? So can you tell me what your favorite three tacos are? Yes. So my favorite is a carnitas taco. Oh yes. With the green sauce. To- I'm a green sauce person. You're a green sauce. I'm a green sauce person. Mm. And then second would be birria. Mm-hmm. And then third, carne asada.
1: And birria, is, are, are you doing like goat meat or are you doing? Goat meat. Goat meat. Oh, yes. you're hardcore. Yes. All right. That's pretty serious. I'm, yeah. I'm not the biggest birria fan.
0: Oh, sorry. <laughs> missing out, hon.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, the, especially goat meat, it's a little gamey.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. You know, we just discovered a place near our office. So it's called Samora Brothers. Oh, a very yeah. famous, you know It's near. Yeah. You should yeah, know yeah, Loyola.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, And also um, here in East uh, Delhi. <laughs>
0: And I love it. And then their birria tacos are oh, really? to die for. But Samora's known for their carnitas. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, that's what I usually yeah. have. But one of my colleagues said, try the birria. And I'm like, mm. and you know, I'm not willing to give up my carnitas for that. But I did. And I was like, whoa,
1: well, these are good. I love carnitas. Yes. So you worked out of the East LA office for Lafla, which is on Whittier Boulevard, close to Atlantic, right? Mm-hmm. How long were you at that office? Nine years. So, you must have like gotten to, gone. Do you, did you have any faith, like the fish like, taco? Okay, place? the
0: fish taco, the Baja taco, yeah. the, which I never got the name right and yeah. I still don't. Yeah. I love that place. Mm-hmm. I will stand in that line forever. Always a line. Always a line. I, was, a line. Yeah. I don't care. Uh, Especially
1: like on like. You know, during Lent, God help us. I know that line I is ridiculous. The other day, I was like, "Man, that line is serious,
0: super serious." Yeah. But those are good. Yeah, those so are those good. are good tacos. So good.
1: Yeah. Any other places that you would frequent around there?
0: King Taco, of course. Of course, I'm not. Of course, I of love course. Love King Taco.
1: Love I maybe King taco. I know you do. I maybe had King Taco today for lunch.
0: Wow, <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, and another taco place I like because I'm from Glendale is Tacuasteca. Across the street from the high school. Oh, really? Quick story: It used to be not be Tacos It used to be some like burger place that the owner ran drugs out of it for the lo- for the kids at high school.
1: You know. But
0: now it's a you know, it's a taco place. It's been there for uh, like a couple of decades now. Yeah, so
1: good. Yeah, so good. You just can't beat tacos. I'll never get tired of tacos ever. How can you? <laughs> ever how do you live without them no i don't you can't no i can't and i will say that you did bring me some donuts today which i appreciate because i love donuts there you go (laughs) very deeply so thank you very much i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad i hit that mark (laughs) (laughs) Sylvia. i really want to thank you for coming today and for being on the podcast i really really appreciate it it's been great to see you again because although i've known you for a long time i don't see you Enough. And I've loved just hearing your story and hearing about your journey because I think you just have been you've had a remarkable career. I'm just really proud to know you and to have known you for such a long time.
0: Oh, Sandra. Well, wow. <laughs> thank you very much. You know, as I as I told you before we started recording, I am so impressed always with you and this podcast, the women you've had, your clients I am humbled, grateful to be a part of this. You were always impressive. You weren't just a kid doing document reviews from the beginning. And I'm a huge fan of yours.
1: Ah, uh, man. You know, thank you. And I'm just going to do a little more shout out because you were talking about like meeting people. And I think, I don't know, I'm sure you remember Carol Thomas. Of course who was married to Richard Fajardo. Yes. <clears throat> Carol Thomas is the person who was in charge of that document review project. And I think she saw something in me. And that's why she, they brought me back to do the timesheet <laughs> input. And I, I always think, I mean, Olga obviously played a, a huge part. She was there too, and maybe she forced Carol to get me the job. But Carol, I think, saw something and I... I to her, I also am very indebted, you know, because she saw something in those two weeks that I had to do a document review, which is a testament to, like, you never know what opportunity is going to, like, result in, you know, so it's always important to do your best your at everything. Best. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm
0: glad you brought Carol up. She
1: was Yeah, amazing. she was great, right? She was, she was amazing, too. Yeah, she and Olga were the, I think, the top paralegal or the, I don't know, senior paralegals or whatever they, they were, were called. They just- were yeah, they were remarkable. They ran circles around all the lawyers. Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah, they really did.
0: You know, I, I'm grateful that we are you and I are part of a community of lawyers that is just amazing. Yeah. I, I, I I gotta tell you, I love those people. I do too. Litton Stormer was such a great training ground it and just was. you know,
1: Barry, Dan, Barbara Barbara and Teresa. And Teresa Traber, who Traber. is just like she's a judge now in the yeah. Supreme Court and I had the chance to work with Teresa on a, on, a, on a class action. I just have always found her to be just so remarkably kind, intelligent. I just really love Teresa a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And me, you know, my fellows, my fellow fellows were Virginia Keeney, Virginia Keeney. Ann Richardson, yeah. Derek Lee, yeah. Burt Voorhees, Burt although Voorhees. he was already, I think he was an associate, not a fellow. Yeah. But he had been a, a fellow. Just great people. I tell you, I'm uh, so lucky. Really,
1: all of the, all of you, I mean, I, I just, I cannot tell you like how you have all helped, and I mean, I, you know what I mean, like you taught me. It was the first time that I had seen lawyers, and I saw what lawyers were doing. Mercedes Marquez working. Mercedes, on this, of course, yeah. On the slum, on the slumlord buildings, I just yeah. saw, like, I was like, wow, lawyers can really do a lot to help people, and it just, you know. It just played a, such a big fact. It just played such a big factor in what I ended up doing and becoming. You know, so I'm yeah. so grateful to all of you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I wouldn't have learned a housing without Mercedes and Mirta, mm-hmm. Mirta Ocaña, Mirta yeah. recently passed. I and know. I tell you, she was she was a dynamo too. Yeah, and, uh, I mean,
1: she was. No remarkable. one knew slum housing
0: better than Mirta.
1: No, and I remember, like, because I spoke Spanish, so they eventually, after I was inputting timesheets, <laughs> I started interviewing the tenants in the slumlord buildings, and it was just like, you know, horrible conditions. Like, I just remember having to ask people like how many roaches have entered your ear how many rats have fallen on you like I just got a taste like full on right from the beginning when I was very very young about what civil rights was what a civil rights lawsuit could do how it could impact the most needy people or the most people in need yeah or something like that yeah it was just an amazing experience that I'm forever grateful to have had, and thankful to Oka for all of that. You know.
0: Yeah, it was a it was a great moment, great time with all of those lawyers and paralegals who, you know, I've never, I don't, you know, they're such they were such committed people, mm-hmm. and they continued and, and they mm-hmm. stay doing this. You know, their trajectories and yeah, to me they'll always be my heroes because. They really taught me how to be a lawyer. Me too. And, and, and how do you ever repay
1: that? You can't, other than to hopefully do your very best with your clients. Yeah, you put, a, you put that perfectly, for sure. All right, Sylvia. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're thinking, hey, I think I need to speak to a lawyer, you should get in touch with me. You can do that by going to scmlawoffices.com and sending me a message there. If you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can connect with me on Twitter at SEM underscore in underscore ELA. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.